what was even more beautiful is just sitting and listening to the wind going through the trees or the waves crashing against the rock. And even we know the sound of waves, but the sound of waves changes completely from day to day. You know, it can lap on the surface. It can crash against the rocks and this beautiful force of mother nature. And, and for me, the whole experience, especially sitting there in silence, awakened all my senses, but also made everything. It just made you have a sense of being aware of every single thing. That voice you just heard was Erin Milzinski. Canadian World Cup alpine ski racer, three-time Olympian and seasoned world traveller. Erin recently sat down with me to chat about her experiences abroad, how they've transformed her as a person and what she's learned about herself along the way. Please fasten your seatbelts and return your seats to their upright positions. We are now beginning our final approach to The Ginny Show. People travel to get away from it all, while others use the opportunity to discover parts of themselves they never knew existed. For Erin, her recent trip to Indonesia inspired her to take risks and let her discover an entirely new side of herself. While taking part in a mindfulness retreat, she had an incredible experience that opened her eyes to the power of silence and observation, and she was even able to make a friend purely through body language. Because I'm an Olympian and because I do a lot of sports, mindset is everything. You know, we can train as much as we want physically, but mindset is everything. And when you're standing at the top of the hill, people think we're fearless and that nerves and pressure and everything doesn't get to us. But in reality, it does. So mindfulness came in and I've worked with a sports psychologist for years and I decided I wanted to train my mind to kind of be more present. And I thought, what better way to do it than totally submerse yourself in it. Take yourself away from the normal, get uncomfortable and submerse. And so I was looking for a retreat and my friend just happened to be running this one and literally across the globe and I traveled there alone. It was a really cool opportunity to work on not only myself, but just staying really present and something that I never take the time to do. Do you remember the book Eat, Pray, Love? Well, now pop culture often refers to that kind of trip the one you take across the world to an exotic place, as the Eat, Pray, Love trip. It's where we go to heal a heartbreaking situation or hardship, and we travel to these places in the world to both lose and find ourselves. Leading in, I just really wanted to try to make a change in my own life. And I know sometimes we have to go through hardship and we have to go through setbacks and we have to go through these huge kind of hits to our psyche in order to make a change. And I didn't want to have to experience that, but I knew a change had to be made and lessons could be learned without those setbacks. And so I wanted to just completely set myself apart from anything that I had ever done before. So I guess the expectation is to come out a little bit more mindful, a little bit better at practicing mindfulness and just doing something completely different. But I also know how hard it is to make changes. You can't just go away for four or five days and come back a completely different person. And so it was more implementing those things into my own life. 
It was really cool because I've traveled my whole life. That's the way it is. And I've traveled through airports alone and I've met up with my team. And of course, my friend was running the retreat, but actually traveling alone and I had to pay with every, for everything with cash. So with a lot of cash on me, landing in Indonesia and having to hire what they call Grab, that's their Uber, which didn't make me feel super nice as a single female traveling alone. Grab? Grab, yeah. That's a bit of an unfortunate name. <laughs> yeah, strange choice. But just being completely in a new place, alone with my thoughts, not that many people speak English. And every time I was alone, I would write in my journal. I walked to the airport. I felt completely safe the whole time, actually. And when I entered the retreat, we met a lot of the girls just for one night first, and we entered into 48 hours of silence, which is really interesting to interact with people that you hardly know. And one girl came after, so we had never actually met and enter into 48 hours of silence. So you're reading people's cues of their body language instead of their social cues and how they speak. And you try to learn from people by their actions instead of their words. At first, your brain is kind of going crazy. And then all of a sudden you kind of just sit in silence. And it was really cool because as an athlete, our minds are kind of always churning. How can I get better? How can I deal with this pressure better? Am I doing enough? And your mind is kind of always churning towards the future. And I always thought that's just the way my brain worked. But as I sat there and I didn't have anyone to talk to, I actually shut my phone completely off. And I realized that's not actually how my brain works. I think I thought it worked that way, but really my brain just kind of sees things in passing. And when they say, you know, think of your thought and let it show as a cloud moving across the sky, that's a hard thing to picture because you kind of get hooked on it. but. If you sit for 48 hours, not talking to anyone, not doing anything, that's really how our thoughts go. And and I realized that it was a really positive experience. And all of a sudden we created these amazing bonds with these people that I had never met and bonds that will probably last a lifetime. And even if they don't, that experience will last a lifetime. It's just incredible how connections are formed in the most random places. Whether it's meeting your best friend at a party on the other side of the world falling in love after a long walking date in a romantic city, or just meeting someone you felt you've always known on a Katiki tour. But can you just imagine forming a connection with someone else without even speaking a word to them? Just imagine the things that would stand out to you. The first thing I noticed, how much we say that we don't really need to say. I think sometimes we just speak you know, at dinner table, you're not going to ask someone to please pass the salt. You kind of motion towards it or you you go and grab it. And we fill so much of our silence with speaking that's not really necessary instead of just sitting with each other and being completely present. And I think that was a huge takeaway. And also people are good. When someone actually asks for your attention, you just hear them instead of seeing them turn towards you, open up and kind of offer a piece of themselves to you. And so I think that it made me realize as humans, we just want calm and we want people to get along and we want to understand each other and we want to be understood. And sometimes we don't have to do that through language. We can do that through our, through our body language and also just kind of being with each other. We're all human beings here. In the external world, silence was only amongst the humans that were participating in the retreat. What was far from quiet were the thoughts in the mind which inevitably become louder, faster, and more obvious because your words and interactions are no longer being used in communication. (laughs) 
At the beginning, your thoughts are so loud, and I think we're so used to that. Our thoughts are loud, our, there's music playing everywhere. Our, it's sensory overload in our world right now. And I think what was so beautiful is taking that all away did make all sounds more amazing. And also it made me see more. You know, I brought my camera and all of a sudden my bathing suits hanging to dry were this beautiful thing. It was pretty cool there because this island is in the middle of nowhere. You can rent a scooter to get around. There's a few cars. And my friend actually was driving down the street and hit a wild pig just roaming the streets and went over the handlebars of her scooter and broke her wrist. And that's the way it is with all the animals there. You you drive down from the airport and there's these wild pigs roaming around and then you enter the next intersection and there's you know wild horses and then you, you sit and listen for a while and you can hear the monkeys kind of cackling in the background. <laughs> Those are the moments that you realize how beautiful where you are is. That was kind of so different, but what was even more beautiful is just sitting and listening to the wind going through the trees or the waves crashing against the rock. And even, you know, we, we know the sound of waves, but the sound of waves changes completely from day to day. You know, it can lap on the surface, it can crash against the rocks and this beautiful force of mother nature. And, and for me, the whole experience, especially sitting there in silence, awakened all my senses, but also made everything. It just made you have a sense of being aware of every single thing, you know, everything is heightened. So you see this beauty and you see the, really coarse, wiry hair on the pig's back as they're running across and squeaking at you. And, and for me, it was just, I just couldn't stop snapping pictures. And I brought a real camera so that I didn't even have an inclination to turn on my cell phone and look at what was going on. It was a real camera and I was just disconnected where I was. Well, that just sounds like a dream, Erin. I mean, you said that you've traveled most of your life as an athlete, but this was your first time traveling alone. So do you think that disconnect from a larger group helped your experience? I think so. I think because we we do fill those silences and also maybe when you're totally alone, I'm not apt to put headphones into both ears or, you know, you're just more aware also because you're trying to be safe. You're trying to, like I said, I was traveling with a lot of cash to even pay for the whole thing because credit card wasn't taken. And so I was more aware of someone walking behind me, but that just made it more more beautiful to see everything around me. And at dinner table, when you have someone to talk to across from you, which is equally as beautiful and I've had amazing conversations and awareness throughout my life with that, sitting down and writing your own thoughts when you're having breakfast or just sitting and watching people around you. We think mindfulness is a practice of sitting there totally silent for you know 10 minutes at a time, focusing on breathing, but really you can walk mindfully and you can talk mindfully and you can eat mindfully. And for me, it was this sense of being mindful doing anything that I did. And I think if I was with someone else, I would fill those mindful moments, which is great too. We need human traction. We've realized that through COVID for sure. But for me at that moment, what I needed was to listen to myself a little bit more. No, absolutely. You also mentioned that during this time, you connected with someone that you referred to as like a kindred spirit based solely on the fact that you were able to communicate via body language. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because obviously we as humans, typically we form connections through an exchange of words. But what was it like connecting with someone so deeply in a nonverbal way? It was strange. Actually, it was really strange because she came a little bit later. I had heard a little bit about her and maybe I was biased leading in because I knew she loved animals and I had heard all these things. But she arrived entering into the silence of the whole thing. And so at the beginning, she thought that maybe my face when it's resting 
and I'm not communicating. I'm not laughing as much. So, you know, we all have a word for that, but I think I was resting in a face that was just a little bit <laughs> off offsetting. I don't know. And so she thought I might not be a super nice person because she had heard nothing about me. And it was really interesting because I don't know if that's what made us connect because we had this to talk about, or once we started talking, we realized how she was totally amazing. And it was interesting because we'd show up at yoga wearing the same thing. And these are like, I had never met her before. It was actually a really interesting thing because we grew closer and closer and people kept kind of making fun of us a little bit in, in a good way about it because we had known each other for maybe 48 hours with speaking and afterwards we were actually on the same flight home and we're like, Oh, this is great. We finally have someone to travel with. And we made plans. We had a long layover and we decided to go to these, I don't know what they're called, but they're kind of like crystal caves. I think it's good that we were so close before going there because it was a really creepy experience. We got a grab and we paid for him to wait for us. And we drove pretty far and we walked on this little narrow path and these guys, you pay them, them like the equivalent of a dollar maybe. And they open this fence and there's three guys and just us two girls. And we were walking down this path and all of a sudden there's a hole in the earth where you go down into this cave. And I'm thinking, okay, like sirens are kind of going off. Like, are we safe? Is this, is this a good experience? What are we doing? And then we walk down and these caves are, it's incredible. The water looks perfectly aqua blue everything's settled. It's totally dark in there. These guys are super nice to us. And my friend starts jumping in the water and something, I don't know, something made me not go in the water. I love water, but she kept jumping in. She's like, okay, Aaron, I'm going to jump one more time. We have to get back to our flight. And I was like, perfect. And she jumped in and she came out of the water and she's like, Aaron, my foot, something's wrong. And she had blood dripping down her foot. And the guys, which ended up being amazing human beings, helped me carry her out of there. And we stopped at a pharmacy. They're like, no, no, you have to go to a hospital. And we went to the hospital, but our next flight was in, at this point, probably an hour and a half. And so we sat there and she couldn't pay because her card wasn't working. So I paid for her stitches. And then we made it to the airport with maybe 10 minutes to spare. Wow, so she really did luck out in making that connection with you. It brought us even closer together because all of a sudden we were, you know, these kind of kindred spirits who had hardly known each other. And then we were pushed into not a, really bad situation, but a situation where we had to act on our feet. We had to stick together and we had to really trust each other through it. <laughs> I like how you said act on your feet because she had to act on a foot, really. One foot for her. Erin's <laughs> <laughs> time in Indonesia was a once in a lifetime experience, but as an Olympic athlete, she's had some other absolutely incredible travel opportunities as well. Her third Olympics took place in Pyeongchang, South Korea, where she experienced a realization that brought her to push herself and her teammates well beyond their normal boundaries. How is it different being in a foreign space when you have your support system with you versus when you're alone? I think it's a little bit different for me because my team, I really rely on them. And there's one person at the office of the federation that we're in that she takes care of everything. If anything goes south, we call her at any hour of the day and she takes care of it and we we have full trust in her and it's the same thing with our coaches and our teammate you know if if we're not getting a covid test right away if, if it's taking too long we we have someone to call and so that was that's a big difference and you know if anything goes south you have someone behind you and also having my boyfriend there it was interesting seeing him compete but he does his own thing i do my own thing when our lives come together they come together having my family there is a bit different because they don't travel as much I kind of know the pearls of travel sometimes. And so 
I worry a little bit more about them. And I worry that they get in the wrong place or they, if they miss a flight, they might not figure it out. And it's good when they're all together. And my dad is very, very savvy with traveling, but my mom is a little bit less so. So usually my dad will go with her, which is an interesting experience. But also for me, it's really nice to have them there to kind of show them a part of my life that they don't get to see. You don't get to see it on FaceTime and I can show my niece where I am. But for me, I, I love to take a little bit of time away to show them kind of the amazing part of what I do. I can imagine just how gratifying that experience must be to finally get to show them your travels in person after doing it virtually for so long. And that experience was one of your first runs in the Olympics, right? I believe you were placed 22nd. But something changed before your second run. Was there a shift in your mindset that you can share with us? I don't know if there was a huge mindset shift. What, what happened was I went out of the start blazing the first run and it was really good. It was my best run in a while. But in a sport I do, a mistake, it's just so costly. You can't make a huge mistake. That's, that's it. And that's four years down the drain, basically. Everything you put in everything and it's down the drain. And I was doing really well and three quarters of the way down the course, I made a big mistake. And I remember yelling, go, just go try to make up for it. I couldn't, I ended up 22nd and too far back, you know, one, two, three seconds back from the leader, you can't catch them. That's the way it is. And, and that's the reality. And you know, it's the reality. They're too good. You have to be close both runs. And I think where the mind shift happened was between the runs, because as soon as I crossed the finish line, I thought you blew it. You blew it. You wasted four years. You took yourself out of the running. I knew I could no longer get a medal. And, you know, we have a few hours between a run and to go from you completely blew it to a place where I had to still compete. Because even if you blow it, you can still have a good race and you can still be strong and you can still have, you know, a top 10 finish, top 15 finish. And what really kind of jogged me into a different state of mind is my teammate who was injured at the time. She's done this a few times and she texted me and she said, Erin, it's not over till it's over. And I thought, you know what, it's not over. Now let's go show them good skiing. Let's show them strength. Wow, I love that. I love that you were able to get that from a teammate. It goes to show just how important your community is during these times. For me, it's really important to kind of act well for our younger generation. And I'm like, let's show them that you don't give up before you even start, even if that doesn't mean a medal. And so that was my mindset for the second run. And so it was a shift kind of between the runs that really did it. And, and I'm, I'm proud of that mindset shift. How does showing up for one another play a part in such a highly competitive world? It's a really interesting community, actually, because I have my friends at home that some of them don't know much about my sport. They know I'm a skier, slide around on snow, and they're my friends regardless of what happens. And then, you know, I have my family and I have my boyfriend. They understand the sport, but they're there and they're pushing me and, and they're there regardless. And then our team, it's interesting because we're part of a team, but we're an individual sport. So you have to support your teammates and you're there for them through thick and thin, but also you are competing for the same spots. You're competing for all of the same things. And so it's kind of this beautiful balance of being able to compete and being able to take care of yourself, but also being able to be part of a community and uplift each other. How do you work out the balance of those roles of being teammates as well as competitors? That's a very difficult line to tote. What has been really amazing for Canada and other countries too, but it's amazing to see women supporting women because the stronger we are together, the more our team raises up. And so maybe that 
day I'm not the one performing, but my teammate is. And how lonely is it to always only be the one at the top? And you can never be as good as someone else who has someone pushing them. And so for my teammate to step out and say, you know, it's not over till it's over. That's huge on her part because she's my direct competitor. She's amazing. And she wanted me to do well because she's a good person and she's my support and she'll always be there. And so we, we have these huge connections that last forever, but it's so interesting to be also direct competitors. It's almost like swimming with sharks, not that I would call your teammate sharks, but you must always have that in the back of your mind in some way. And I'd love to know how you view your community. My community is so special. My sponsors, my coaches, for me, relationships are so important. And there's all these tests you can do with your sports psychologist that show you who you are. And for me, it's just relationships just keep coming up. And so I get hurt really easily and I give really easily. But I think that that's also a huge strength of mine. And so for me, I kind of leave with the heart, not always the best scenario in a sporting community. And I've had to learn how to, you know, someone told me to have a tiny sheet of paper, not even as big as a sticky note and write the people on there that I really value their opinion. And those are the only people that I can listen to. And for me, that was eye-opening because of course I listen to a lot of people. Of course they're important to me. But, you know, on that little piece of paper, maybe five people fit on there. And those are the five people that really get a say that I really will turn to and ask those questions on a daily basis. Because as a skier, I don't really have trolls into my Instagram, which is amazing. But I kind of have people giving me feedback and people giving me their thoughts on what I do and how I do it and how I'm acting. And so it's really important for me to hold on to those five people and know that if I'm making them proud, I should be proud if I'm in a sticky situation, those are my people to rely on. Because if you listen to everyone, it's too much criticism and it's, I'm a people pleaser and it's just too much. Out of all of Erin's many experiences, skiing is perhaps the most formative influence in her life. She's an alpine skier, so her form is a relatively disciplined one of the sport generally taking place with the confines of a well-groomed course. Not long ago, she was given the chance to take advantage of a backcountry skiing opportunity in the French Alps. With steep cliffs, copious amounts of icy terrain, and a looming threat of avalanches, Erin was truly operating outside of her comfort zone. Erin, to finish this wonderful time we've had together, I'd love to hear about your experience backcountry skiing in France. What I'd really love to know is what is your thought process behind these experiences? What is it exactly that you're looking for when you're about to ski that way? That's an amazing question. I think in my life, I've been taught to never settle. And if something challenges me, instead of backing down to face it head on, if I think that I'm unable to do something, it makes me angry and it makes me want to do it even more. And so I'm a skier. I ski down slalom courses, which is um, not very fast, icy courses. And that's basically all I do. You know, I'm a, I'm a one trick pony. I'm okay at the other events, but it's always down ice. And so all of a sudden I was invited to the back country, which you don't have gates marking your way. You don't know what's coming. There's cliffs, there's avalanches. I have no experience. And so when they asked me to do this trip, I, I actually answered their email. I am not your girl. This is not me. You do not want me. This is terrifying. And they kept saying, it was with Helly Hansen, they kept saying, no, you are our girl. We know you can do this. We know you're capable. We think that you'll actually be the one waiting. What was it that finally clicked 
and convinced you to take that challenge. All of a sudden they instilled me with this confidence that I didn't have in myself. And so for me, it was really important to face that fear. And I think it's kind of a blessing and a curse because by facing my fears, it makes me step into my uncomfortable zones and, and never feel too comfortable and never, you know, it makes me a little bit more compassionate for other people. But at the same time, I, I eventually need to realize that everyone feels fear and you can't just look everything head on and say like, I'm going to take it on because it makes me afraid and that makes me feel uncomfortable. And so that was, that was that trip to say, you know, can I do this? Let's test it. Erin, I think that's definitely a testament to your bravery, if anything. I, however, have a confession to make. I've never been skiing before, so I asked a friend of mine who had for some tips, and she told me that when you ski, the only way to stop is to fall. How true is that? Have I been misinformed? No, no, you can, you can throw them sideways, but you definitely stop if you fall. <laughs> Quite quickly. Okay, so maybe there is a better way to stop. I'll have to talk to her about that one. Uh, you talk about how conquering your fear of backcountry skiing led you to a really important realization. So I think we all have moments in our lives where imposter syndrome and self-doubt show up, but you realize through this experience that you could actually trust yourself, which is a really powerful thing. You have these reoccurring themes of bravery and courage in your stories. Would you say that trust is a core value for you? Trust in yourself is everything, I think, especially doing what I'm doing, because you can prepare yourself completely, mentally, physically in every way. But when you stand at the start of a race, you can fall, you can get injured. Like I said, it's pure ice and you can fail incredibly and you fail in front of thousands of people. And to have your failures on a stage incredibly has taken me a little bit of um, getting used to for sure. And so honestly, when I stand in the start at this point for me, because I'm, I'm quite fast at when I train and I have more trouble with racing is what I just keep repeating to myself is trust yourself, trust your skiing, you know, trust that you can do it, trust that you can react. We do more than a turn a second. And so you have to react quickly. And even my physio who stands behind me and he's the one you hear cheering when I go to the start, he's this one screaming, losing his voice. He quietly says to me when I'm in the start, trust yourself, trust your skiing, like you got this. And I think that, you know, for what I'm, what I'm doing, you can see how important it is. Wow, that must be such an incredible feeling to be able to put that trust and confidence in your body to make that happen. How do you see that theme transcending athletics? I think that it's so important for other people. And right now my sister's pregnant and we keep saying to her, you gotta trust that your body knows what to do. Your body knows how to have this baby, how to grow this baby. When you're driving, sometimes we've talked about it before that the first time is really scary, but after that, you have to trust yourself that you're going to react in a split second. You can't plan everything. You know, you can't plan what you're going to do if a deer jumps out. And so I think it kind of cross-pollinates between all walks of life. You just have to, that's not saying you don't do the prep. You have to do the prep and you have to work hard. And then you sit back and you enjoy that moment of trust. You mentioned that scary situations have brought you closer to the people in your life quickly out of necessity. Do you use that awareness in your everyday relationships? I think it's interesting because when you do have to trust someone completely, you have to trust them completely. And when it's, you know, if you're in avalanche territory, it's life or death. So I think also honesty is front and center. And we've asked this question, you know, what comes first, honesty or trust? And I think when you're in that 
the situations that where it's scary, you have to trust a little bit blindly. And then that's where honesty comes in. And so if someone's uncomfortable, they have to say it. If it's not safe, if they don't think they're capable, if they're tired, it's all this honesty coming out. And for me, I really look for that in everyone. If I go to Lenny and I complain about something, he's not just going to sit there and be like, oh yeah, you're right, Aaron. I support you either way. He challenges me and he's honest with me. And sometimes he says, you know, you're the problem. And I think that that's such a beautiful thing. And it makes me trust him more because I know I'm not going to just get the answer I want. And sometimes I, I just want that answer and that it's not what I get. I get the honest truth. And for me, that's what builds trust the fastest. People that are completely, authentically, beautifully themselves through thick and thin. And that's what I look for now. And that's what kind of keeps coming up through every experience I've been through. A hundred percent agreed on that. I want to talk about your podcast, Unspoken Bravery, which I have the pleasure of producing. The title is very potent and I can now see a whole deeper meaning to this title because you really have this unspoken bravery in so many layers. And it's not just unspoken. There is an awareness about it, but you embody it rather than speak about it, which is what I think is so powerful. Obviously, there's that level of you going backcountry skiing without knowing what to expect, but there's also being brave enough to trust yourself, being brave enough to trust other people, being brave enough to trust your skills in skiing. Can you unpack your thought process around that title, Unspoken Bravery? What I've realized through athletes then I've realized it through other people because of that realization, you start noticing it, is that we all have these amazing stories behind who we are. We see that you start a business and we see all these things, but you survived your parents getting divorced. And that's that's a warrior mindset. And there's so many things that we've been through as human beings and no one sees it. And now it's even worse with Instagram. And we feel like we can't be completely authentically ourselves, but that's what actually makes people completely brave. And I think that those unspoken battles can show how brave we are and make us brave, but also they can help other people step up and be brave themselves. And so, you know, it's kind of the story behind the story. It's what, why did that business woman become CEO and how did she get there? Usually there's a story. And, you know, I shared one at the beginning of my personal story, but looking back through my life, you know, it's, it's been very privileged, very gifted, and I'm super lucky, but I have so many of those stories behind the scenes. It made me realize that everyone has those stories and that we don't talk about them because maybe we are taught that it's complaining or taught that it's weak to feel fear or taught that we have something to be ashamed of. And I wanted to shed light that those things are not something to be ashamed of. There's something to wear as a badge of honor, you know, and it's kind of a life tattoo and it makes us who we are. And it's that we're all so beautifully imperfect and let's celebrate those imperfections. I'm curious about the dichotomy you see between podcasting and being an elite athlete. And I say this because how do you go from a situation where as an athlete, you have crowds of people cheering, you know, your coach is telling you you've got this and people rooting from you from their living rooms. It's all very loud and you can be immersed in that audible sensory experience, so to speak. But then you go to a podcast where like you're hosting an episode with someone or you're, you're talking to someone and you release it and there's no immediate feedback. Like you record, it's out there, you don't get any kind of response in the moment. That has to also be a big trust step as well. It's almost, it's a huge difference. 
it's pretty interesting. Every time I record an episode, the last time I recorded an episode, I had sweat just dripping like slowly down my back because I was so nervous, but I kept reminding myself, you know, this is nothing to be nervous about. You don't even have to release this. You can redo it. You can edit it, but it's out of my comfort zone and it's being completely vulnerable. Has there ever been a moment with the podcast where you felt like throwing in the towel? A few weeks ago, actually, you don't know this, but I, I texted home and I said, I, I feel like giving up. I'm, my questions are bad. I'm not leading people where I want them wanted to go. I, I don't know if I'm having any sort of success. And like you said, maybe it's because I'm used to this instant gratification. You're fast or you're slow. You know, it's not even a judge sport. You know, immediately and you get cheers or you, you know, it's, it's all time. That's it. But that week, actually, slowly I had people, you know, just one or two say, hey, that was really meaningful or, hey, I can relate to that. Or I didn't know that person went through that. That's incredible. Please keep sharing because so many people have been through similar things and their stories aren't told. And through that, you're telling these unspoken stories of people that their stories will never be told. And I've kind of had to rearrange because for what I do, thousands of people watch and on Instagram, you you also get likes and we all see that and they get rid of the likes and they come back but you kind of know what your insights are and for me now what I've realized is that so many girls one in three girls stop sport by adolescence and one in ten boys and for me a huge thing is if one girl stays in sport because of someone telling their story throughout the whole process not just one episode or something then I've done my job and I can walk away with my head held high I didn't set expectations. You know, I can't look at the insights and say I'm doing well or I'm not doing well. I can tell by the feedback that I get from people slowly and quietly that maybe I touched a part of their life that that they didn't even know that they had experienced and that how brave they were through it and that they're a warrior for even feeling that fear and doing it anyways. Well, that's it for today's episode of The Judy Show. I hope you enjoyed my time with Erin and hopefully even learned a thing or two from her incredible spirit, adventurous heart, and potent bravery. Until next time, 